Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you give me grace, help my voice to hold up. Lord, the subject is too important to be lost for any reason. I pray that you give your people grace to pay for a movement of the Spirit to impart these things to us. Lord, that we may not injure each other with our words, that we may bless and edify and rebuke according to your word with hearts and minds that are properly informed. I pray that you bless your people in this time and the study of communication, which is so fundamental to our lives here on earth. We seek to honor you in these things, Lord. Please help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, throughout this series, through Proverbs, we've addressed a main topic in each sermon from various different texts found in various chapters in this book. And as we said in the opening sermon, uh, this method of study is in keeping with the structure of Proverbs, which is not to say that the book is helter-skelter in its arrangement, but it is to acknowledge that it's certainly not linear in the way that it's laid out in, say, uh, the manner of the epistles or of books that go through various narratives from beginning to end. Rather, what you have here is Solomon as a father teaching his son, and in the manner of fathers, he repeats himself often, because, as any father can tell you, it is the manner of sons to require repetition of such lessons, often, ad nauseum, seemingly. But at any rate, due to the layout of this book, I have reread this many times at this point. And I've done this in an effort to leave no concept behind with respect to a given subject. Now, because I can't hope to retain the sum of all that Solomon has written on any subject, much less all of the categories that he instructs on, I continue to recover the same ground each week with a different objective in mind, pulling various different passages and attempting to put them into a cohesive whole, all pointing toward one primary objective. And I'm the better for these repeated readings in many ways, but one of the things that this also allows me to do is discern patterns and volume of content better with respect to certain categories. And I've concluded that there is no topic which Solomon speaks on more, uh, with more repetition or frequency than communication. I speak on money and sexuality and on other issues a lot too, but the volume of content on those issues is nowhere near 
uh, the volume that he writes on conveying and receiving information through speech. And it would seem that the explanation for his emphasis is found in Proverbs 18.21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Well, that is quite a power that Solomon ascribes to the tongue, and I think that the key to understanding why the tongue possesses such power is found in, say, Proverbs 23.7, which states, As a man thinks within himself, so he is. So we, we understand that belief dictates behavior, but even more so, belief dictates being in a very real sense. I think, therefore, I am is a popular saying, but according to Solomon, what you think about yourself in very tangible ways makes you who you are. And what informs the way that we think of ourselves? Well, as Christians, we hope the Word of God primarily, but also certainly our words is informed by our thoughts as well as, and to great degree, the words of others. This is very well observed in children. A child who is told that they are nothing commonly becomes nothing. Not always, because God has the final say and there is always room for grace, but commonly. On the other hand, if you tell a child that they're everything, as is very common to our day, then they'll believe that too and they'll treat everybody else as though they are nothing. But consistently tell a child that they're loved and valued and made in the image and likeness of God, and they will commonly, again, not always, but commonly, grow into adults who value themselves as made in God's image, but value others more because they were taught to regard the God whose image they were created in above all else. But though we see this well in children because their malleability makes the effects of our words so visceral, we're all shaped in this way. Solomon's observation that death and life are in the power of the tongue is really as much as anything an observation of our God-created constitutions. What I'm saying here is that you and I were created to be deeply moved by words. You want to move dirt, use a shovel. If you want to move a man for better or worse into life or death, words are your greatest tools. Serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. And when that crafty serpent slithered into our first parents' souls, did he do so through their eyes? Seeing a series of pictures or visual aids? Did he do so through touch? No. Rather, he slithered into their hearts through their ears, and so we all fell in Adam. And conversely, is the gospel a full sensory experience? Well, it affects all the senses as we've been learning. But it is received by us as written or verbal communication. And we are commanded to verbalize it to others in the Great Commission. And while salvation and damnation through verbal proclamation are the greatest examples of the life-giving or life-destroying power of the tongue, there are many examples that exist between those two extremes. And here are some more in addition to the example that I gave you with children. A wife can build her husband up. She can make him feel confident to address various issues that he needs to as a husband, which isn't to say she should be hanging on every word that she says, but she can help him greatly in that. She can edify him, or she can cast him down like no other. When they covenanted together, he gave her the power to do both. A husband also has this power with his wife. He can elevate her. He can empower her to live up to all that God has commanded of her, or he can castigate her and cast her down. 
How about church members? Do we as church members have the power to both heal and hurt each other with our words? Oh, indeed. And if you've been around churches long enough, you know this. There have been times where I've walked into church in, in various different congregations and been hanging on by a thin thread, and I have had some kind, compassionate someone led by the Holy Spirit impart to me something that lifted my soul. And because spiritual warfare is real and is happening in the church, I have also had times where I've been hanging on by a thin thread and I had somebody that purported to be a Christian or actually was cut it. So with life and death on the line and a whole lot of helping and hurting in between, we'd probably better get this communication thing right. And to that end, in a few moments, I'll be launching into a litany of points on good and godly communication from Proverbs. But before I do this, I want you to understand that this issue is not first and foremost an issue of mechanics. Uh, just put this in, add that to it, and it equals this. It's not primarily an issue of methodology. It's kind of unfortunate because I think mechanics of the mouth would have made a really catchy sermon title, but it's not really what's at the heart of this. This is a gospel issue. As Jesus said, Luke 6:45, the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. As always, when it comes to Christian behavior, this is first and foremost a result of being and not doing. Doing reflects being born-again people speak as born-again people. People who have new natures speak with a new language, one that edifies, one that is seasoned with grace. However, because our being is not yet perfect, neither is our doing. And so this is where the wisdom of Solomon comes in. He will enable us to navigate the treachery of our own tongues by applying his wisdom in communication. So let us, let Solomon teach us how to safeguard our speech, both in giving and receiving, so that we neither grieve God, as Paul says in Ephesians, by the way that we speak to each other, nor harm people outside of the church either. Uh, today we'll start with when not to speak, and next time we will address how to speak. All of our points then this afternoon are going to be to the effect at least of don't speak if or when. And we're starting here because good communication is often every bit as much about what you don't say as it is about what you do say. First off, none of us have infinite time to speak, so we all make editorial choices based upon prudence. Furthermore, there are also circumstances that, according to Solomon, necessitate silence. A lot of them, in fact. And he has a lot of specific counsel on this. But let's start with this broad concept. Proverbs 21, 23, he who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from troubles. Let me ask you a silly question based upon that. Do you want a quieted soul rather than a disquieted one? Of course. So then let us learn how to guard our mouths that we may protect our souls. And with all this said, we will enumerate our study into points, and many of our points will be quite brief. I settled on 10. Some of them, though, will be a little bit more involved. But point number one is, listen before you speak. Listen before you speak. And about the first five or six of these are really rudimentary and fundamental 
But they have to be said because they're the essential foundation of this subject. But again, listen before you speak. Those who do not listen well speak even worse. Proverbs 28.9, he who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer, is an abomination. And whose law would that be? It would be the law of God. It's the word of God. Mine must be informed by the word of God or else the mouth has nothing edifying to say. And you have to have listened to the law of God. Proverbs 19.20, listen to counsel and accept discipline that you may be wise the rest of your days. Now I do believe that that seems to be primarily directed, or at least more so, towards the young. It would seem that there's a period of time that is to be spent more in being filled and then a period of time that precedes that where we share with others what we have been filled with, and that is the rest of our days according to the text. And could also find application in spiritual infancy as opposed to spiritual maturity. But the lesson here seems to be that the child who listens well grows to become the adult who speaks well. I have one child in particular who incessantly asks questions. And at various points I find this frustrating until I remember that I incessantly ask questions. And so I have never responded to them in the negative for this. I hope they don't know which one of them I'm referring to right now, as a matter of fact, because I would never do anything to discourage this. They need to ask that they might be informed that when that transition occurs in their life, they would have wisdom to speak, hopefully having received it from their father. Proverbs 18.4, the words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. Another passage says, uh, a man's motives are deep waters, but a discerning man draws them out. But at either event, the key to discerning a person's character or nature is unlocked by their speech. So if you want to know the answer to that question, if you want to uncover that secret of who are they, what do you have to let them do? You have to let them speak. Wisdom is to become comfortable with uncomfortable silences at certain points. To not feel the need to fill every gap in conversation, to let people speak, to let them reveal who they are for the good or for the bad. And finally, and interestingly, Proverbs 21.13, he who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be answered. One of the concepts that we've talked about is that wisdom as God has it is synonymous with righteousness. If it is wise, it is righteous. If it is righteous, it is wise. There is always a moral component to it. And so the wise ear is also the compassionate ear. It is not just the ear that is listening to uh, wisdom on a given subject to a utilitarian end so that you may make more money or have a better job or a happier life. It's an ear that's listening to the concerns of others that it may meet those concerns. When God gives a person ears with which to hear, per the words of Christ, those ears hear the needy. Point number two, don't speak if and when you don't know. Don't speak if and when you don't know. Proverbs eighteen seventeen has got to be my most quoted, or it's at least up there. First to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. Proverbs 18, 13 similarly says, he gives an answer before he hears. It is folly and shame to him. Now, this is certainly common sense. Nobody in this room would hear this and disagree with it. In fact, I think that if you went 
and posed this question to unbelievers. They agree that you ought to hear the matter before you respond. What kind of fool wouldn't? And yet all kinds of fools don't. So what accounts for that? Even many Christians don't wait to actually hear what's happening before they adjudicate a matter in their own heart. Why? I think one of the reasons, if not the biggest reason, is because we think we know when we don't. Because we commonly and easily ascribe to ourselves a godlike knowledge of others' motives. And this is one of the negative aspects of being emotional beings. Or at least one of the challenges of living as emotional beings in a fallen world. Now, both men and women can do this. In my experience, though, women do it more because their emotions can get away from them with respect to a certain matter, and they can start connecting dots that are not there. They have words, and they have actions, and then they add a whole lot to those things from their own minds, their own imaginations, to equal a certain uh, consequence, a result, or motive. And husbands need to be the ones to help. But sometimes it will be wives that need to help their husbands in this too. It does go both ways, and as Christians, we should be. Wait a minute, hold on. How did you get there? Okay, I, I, I understand that this situation happened or that this statement was made, but how did you from that get to the conclusion that you did? And by the way, the principle becomes even more difficult to apply when you already don't like somebody. Right? And we all have people that we don't like. So when we hear negative things about them that are not necessarily grounded in their actions or their words or even make sense, we are ready to believe these things because we do not like them. But we must endeavor to represent them accurately. If you don't have sufficient information, do not speak to a matter. With one exception, and that's asking questions. Questions to seek clarity. And then after you have asked those questions, if the matter even involves you at all, which we'll get to later, consider the situation thoughtfully. And then respond. And on this, Solomon has much to say as well. And here's only a brief sampling. Proverbs fifteen twenty eight: The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. 29, 20. Do you see a man who's hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Think, think, think before you speak. Do not feel as though you need to give an answer in the moment. There are many situations that have taken me off guard and I've just backed up, thought about it, and then come back to it. And there have been many other situations which I didn't do that and it worked out poorly for me in my life, so I've learned more and more as the years have gone on. One of the things that marks the communication of unbelievers is that it is impulsive. For them, the tongue is a creature of instinct. It just responds to stimuli the moment that it is stimulated through the ears. For the Christian, though, the tongue is to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Moving on, but similarly, Proverbs 25, 8, do not go out hastily to argue your case. Otherwise, what will you do in the end when your neighbor humiliates you? And this is closely related also to Proverbs seventeen twenty eight. Even a fool is counted wise until he opens his 
mouth. A great number of men have been seduced by the desire to appear wise when in fact they are foolish with respect to a given matter only to end up humiliating themselves. And this, by the way, goes back to what we've already discussed in the first sermon and finding your identity in Christ rather than in the opinions of men. Men who know who they are do not seek the affirmation of other men by darkening their counsel with words without knowledge. Whereas men who need other men to tell them who they are are so eager to be liked and approved of that they just cannot help but spew seemingly wise words that are actually stupid that end up accomplishing the very opposite of what they want to accomplish. Instead of being regarded as intelligent and as wise, they are seen as fools. Point number three, mind your own business. Mind your own business. Proverbs twenty six seventeen. like one who takes a dog by the ears is he who passes by and meddles with strife not belonging to him. And when I first added this verse to my outline, what struck me was that if that principle was actually practiced, I think social media ceases to be overnight. Because that's all it is. Is this thread, this conflict that doesn't pertain to you at all, but you jump into it? Now, what should be understood is how to determine strife that doesn't belong to you. Okay, if somebody in the congregation mistreats somebody else in the congregation in your purview, does that strife belong to you? Yes, it does. Because they've harmed somebody in the body, and they've done it in front of you. They determined the sphere of that sin's operation, and now you must respond to it. That is one of Christ's sheep that they're sinning against. This also doesn't negate all the lessons in Scripture about helping people and going out of your way to help people and to be involved in situations that don't directly pertain to you, but uh, through which you are able to do good for them. But what of a private matter that, per Jesus' words, should only be addressed person to person that you have somehow become abreast of, perhaps through some illegitimate means like gossip? You have to leave it alone. It doesn't belong to you to address it. And by the way, the Lord has given us a great remedy to involving ourselves in stuff that doesn't involve us. You know what it is? It's work. We already talked about that. Busy people don't become busy bodies. Not at least easily. Involve yourselves in doing the good work of God and you'll have less time to meddle in affairs that don't pertain to you and just mess up other people's lives in the process because that's all that meddling does. By the way, there are also people who will aggressively seek to involve you in their disputes with others. You're not to take the bait there either. Proverbs has a lot to say about that too, and I won't go into all of it. But I've experienced this a number of times. There was a man who, for a number of years, sought to pull me into his various different issues with this person and that person. This man has never been a part of this church. But uh, I consistently stayed away from that, and then eventually I had to stay away from him because he would not stop. I got 99 problems, but yours aren't one of mine. Okay, if you've got an issue with somebody, you deal with it with them. Try to pull together a cabal, a posse, a gang. Point number four, don't speak when you should act. Don't speak when you should act. Proverbs 3, 27, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. In verse 28, do not say to your neighbor, go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it. 
when you have it with you. And there are more lessons that can be drawn from this than I'm going to draw from it now. But the man in the text has what the other man needs. He has it on his person. Or he is able to get it at the ready. But he withholds it, and instead he offers to him empty words. And sadly, in our day, in our churches, we do this, and very often we do this in the form of, I'll pray for you. I had a brother, Andy, my best friend, he messaged me this morning and, and told me that he was praying for me and that he had, I can't remember how he had phrased it, but that he had labored in prayer for me. That was very sweet. That was very sincere. And I appreciate that immensely. Sincere prayers are wonderful. But a prayer that's offered in lieu of action that you can provide cannot be sincere How is it that you would be praying for the well-being of another when you have the means to bring that well-being about and are withholding it from them at the present? Point number five, don't boast. Proverbs 30, 32, if you've been foolish in exalting yourself or if you plotted evil, put your hand on your mouth. I should not speak that loudly or I risk not being able to speak anymore after that. But it's an important point. If you gotta go like this, to plug up that dam, do it. Self-praise is obviously an expression of pride, which is a sin. But because it's prideful, it's also usually distorted, and the two kind of go hand in hand. You can see this in Proverbs 25, 14, like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of his gifts falsely. So in the funhouse mirror of my own pride, my gifts look a lot better than they look to other people. And they really are. So how do I know if God has gifted me in a given way or if I'm just self-deluded? Well, that's where others come in. In local church, if indeed I am to be praised, it is in fact only to come from others. And I am still in this instance not to think anything of myself, but to praise the Lord who has gifted me accordingly to the praise of the glory of his grace. Proverbs 31, 28 through 31, her children rise up and bless her, speaking of the proverbial woman, Proverbs 31, woman, her husband also, and he praises her, saying, many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the product of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. It is the quality of that which she produces that praises her, and it is those who are near her who are in full view of her virtue that praise her. Nobody who's actually worthy of praise seeks it, nor do they need to seek it in order for it to be given because it is so manifestly true that it will come from others. So brother or sister, if it needs to be said about you and it's positive, it will be by somebody else. Otherwise you run the risk of saying things about yourself that are not in fact accurate because you see yourself through a lens of pride. So just when it comes to you, leave it to God. Point number six, if a sin has been repented of, forgiven, and a relationship has been restored, it is not to be raised again. That sequence of events is important. If a sin has been repented of, forgiven, and a relationship has been restored, it is not to be raised again. Proverbs 17, 9, he who conceals a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. Now the idea here is obviously that there was a sin committed by one party against another, and that matter was confessed and forgiven. And the two parties were 
reconciled. Now, if this process of reconciliation has indeed occurred and the behaviors no longer persist, and that's also key, it's never to be raised again. And this means not inside the relationship nor outside of it. You know, to talk about it uh, with others, and you're not to be using it as leverage within the relationship that it actually occurred. And in fact, if a sin has been truly forgiven, it's not going to be raised again. Because for the person who has forgiven, there's no utility or value in raising a past grievance. There's nothing about rubbing somebody's nose in it that in any way helps or facilitates a reconciled relationship to remain strong and healthy and Christ-honoring. In fact, all that that's going to do is create cracks, right? Create harm. Now, just about the only exception for this is if the sin at issue has caused temporal consequences that are ongoing. These consequences are still being experienced, and obviously the root cause of them is still going to be mentioned in the relationship. And so, for example, infidelity that results in an out-of-wedlock pregnancy, that one's probably coming back up again a few times. But not again to be used as, as leverage just because of the nature of the situation. But if this is the case, the issue is still at the fore because of the consequences of it being at the fore not because there still remains an axe to grind. If you have an axe to grind and you're grinding it, uh, the only use that that has is to cut people down. But it has no value in building relationships back up. However, if there's not actually been forgiveness, or if there was forgiveness, but the forgiver later let their heart backslide again into bitterness, then there is great value in repeating a matter. And that value is retribution. This revenge, which is not something the Christian is ever to engage in. Because, of course, to do this is to destroy the relationship. As the text says, separates intimate friends. It's also, by the way, to do the work of the accuser, who is Satan. That's his work. He brings up matters for no good reason to not benefit the people involved, just to cast them down and take them back into the mud from which Christ has raised them out. And it should also here be noted that the scale of the sin does nothing to negate or qualify this. One of the examples that I could use, perhaps the greatest one, is infidelity within a marriage. That is a grievous breach of trust. And that is a truly vile act to defile the marital bed. But if that matter has been settled, brother or sister Christian, you don't ever bring it back up again. It's done. In fact, if you're staying with your spouse, if that sin has been repented of and then forgiven, that's what you're signing up for. That's what forgiveness looks like. You don't bring it back up again, not even for that. Grievous as that is, and it is, an incredible breach of trust there. You have done far worse to God in the context of your Christian faith. You know it and I know it. And you've been forgiven and he hasn't raised it again. You don't raise it again with your spouse. But that's just one example. Don't do the work of the devil for him. Point number seven, don't speak presumptuously, especially as it pertains to spiritual matters. And speak presumptuously, especially as it pertains to spiritual or moral matters. Proverbs 20, verse 25, it's a trap for a man to say rashly, it is holy. 
and after the vows to make inquiry. Now basically this pertains to making promises to God or promises to others that concerns God when you don't really know what you're talking about. Or perhaps also more by way of application, laying religious burdens upon others that aren't actually required of them by God. Numbers 30 speaks to this. Verses 1 and 2 of that chapter. Then Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the sons of Israel, saying, This is the word which the Lord has commanded. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. If you are going to consecrate something to the Lord or require that somebody else does or demand that something be treated as sacrosanct, you better know what you're talking about ahead of time. Instead of finding yourself in a situation where you make that kind of pronouncement and judgment and then after the vows make inquiry according to the text, you know, to like find out if the judgment that you passed down from on high actually had anything to do with anything that God ever taught. Okay, when many of us were children, we'd operate on the no-take-backs rule. Did you ever do that? What that does is that separates categories of things that you're saying. So you have the normal category, you know, Maybe you mean what you said, maybe you didn't. But then the no take backs, well, that makes that oath really, really serious. Understand that as far as God is concerned, that's the only way that he operates. Do not promise something to him and not follow through. I swear to God, as it is commonly used in our language, is as antithetical to this as it gets. It is used flippantly, it is used cavalierly, But there are many ways to violate this beyond this that Christians are often guilty of. How about divorce? I married somebody not that long ago who not that long after violated their covenant. And I said, I was there, man. You agreed before God and God's people to stay with this person. How about, honey, I'm going to start leading spiritually instead of deferring my God-given role to you, speaking from the perspective of a man to a woman. I'm going to step up. And then a few days go by and slip right into the same old patterns. That's a religious vow made before God in that person. Or, honey, I'm going to submit myself to you and stop rebelling against Christ by usurping your role. And a few days go by and she slips right back into it. Or, Hey, fellow church member, I'm going to help in such and such a ministry, but then you never actually do and you don't follow through. You know, one of the best things that a child can be taught by their parents is if you overcommit and obligate yourself to others in a way that makes them dependent upon you, you follow through, irrespective how hard it is for you. Oh, but I bit off more than I can chew. Doesn't matter. You don't get to put that responsibility back on that other person. You fulfill your obligation. Maybe you seek somebody else in the present who can take it in the future. But right now, you own it. And I tell you what, if it's a problem, don't flippantly make oaths. Because if you do, your words matter. Own your commitments made to God or to others in the presence of God. And by the way, the takeaway here is not that you shouldn't make oaths. You indeed should. You just saw that in Psalm 61 in this morning. In our readings, the Bible is full of this. 
He said there, you've heard my vows, O God. There are lots of things you need to make vows to God concerning promises. The point here is to keep your oaths, to understand that these things are sacred, not to swear to God as the pagans do. Point number eight, don't even associate with corrupt communicators. Don't even associate with corrupt communicators. And this is an application of 1 Corinthians 10, 12, by the way, as well. Beware he who thinks he stands, lest he fall. Listen, if life and death are in the power of the tongue, then you should probably avoid those people who are trying to murder you with their words, just as you would avoid those people who might want to murder you with a gun or a blunt object. And avoidance of such people is exactly what Dr. Solomon prescribes Chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. Discretion will guard you. Understanding will watch over you to deliver. And I want you to hold on to that word. You from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things, from those who leave the paths of a brightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who delight in doing evil and rejoice in the perversity of evil, whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways to deliver you from the strange woman, from the adulteress who flatters with her words. Now we're going to go through a few categories of corrupt communicators. But first, I'm going to start with the adulteress of verse 16 that I just read to you. Listen to how persuasive the proverbial whore can be. Proverbs 5.3, the lips of an adulteress drip honey and smoother than oil is her speech. Proverbs 6.24, to keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Proverbs 7.16 through 21, here is her pitch to the fool whom she seeks to ruin. She says, I've spread my couch with coverings, with colored linens of Egypt. Look how good my bed looks. I've sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Smell how good my bed smells. Come, let us drink our fill of love until the morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses, for my husband's not home. He's gone on a long journey. we got all the time in the world. He's taken a bag of money with him at the full moon. He will come with her many persuasions. She entices him with her flattering lips. She seduces him. But to what end? Casual sex? Consequences that don't linger? A good time? A good time in the moment? Not for long. Picking up in the very next verse, suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare so he does not know that it will cost him his life. Now, therefore, my sons, listen to me and pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. Don't even be around her. For many are the victims she has cast down and numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way to Sheol descending to the chambers of death. Wicked women enter through the eyes and through the ears, and just like their father Satan, they don't stop until they've destroyed you all the way down to your soul. So remember here, brother, no, you're not wise enough to discern her lies. No, you're not strong enough to resist her sexual predations and persuasions. That's why you must not be in a situation to hear them at all. This is why with every category of sin except one, we are to withstand 
What is that one that is to cause you to flee? It is youthful lust because she's stronger than you. And there's never been a better debater than a beautiful woman. But in addition to the whore, we have the fool. Proverbs 14, 7. Leave the presence of a fool or you will not discern words of knowledge. Now the fool is the unbeliever. Which is not to say that a believer cannot act in a foolish manner. But in terms of our being, we are not fools. I should be noted here there's a specific sense in which we are to leave the presence of a fool. They are not to be our confidants or our counselors. We are to learn nothing of moral value from them. We are not to have relationships with them that will inevitably result in this kind of exchange, which, of course, is what's going to happen in a confidant-type relationship. Now, obviously, we are to engage with the lost for the gospel's sake, but they're not to be our close friends. Because to do that is to make them the evangelist in the relationship inevitably. And it will ruin us because they have satanic knowledge, not godly knowledge. And that is what we will glean from them. And this is just another situation where hubris has no place. I will go to the horrors and the drunks like Jesus did. Hey man, if you mean that in the way that he did it, legitimately to give them the gospel, fantastic. I have given the gospel to numerous literal whores on many street corners and drunks in various different shelters and things and just out in the world you're going to. You don't have to go to a street corner. But is that generally what people mean when they invoke that? No. It means I'm going to go and I'm going to become like them that I may win them. I'm going to enter into Sodom and become a citizen so that I can save everybody. Right. I don't think it works like that. Or how about, I will date this unbeliever and win them to Jesus. No, my friend. It's much more likely that they will win you. People in this situation always use the exception as the rule. It worked out for this one person. I think Todd was talking about this just last week, if I recall. Now let us acknowledge something here. And that is that the world's arguments are asinine. They're not good. And they get worse in each subsequent generation. Let me give you just a brief review of the last hundred years or so in Western civilization. We started with the universe resulted from spontaneous combustion. Has anything ever created itself? Nope. But we're willing to believe that all things did. And we're going to stake our souls on it. Okay. And then this became macroevolution is a thing even though there's zero transitional forms anywhere ever. Okay. And then that became it's an affront to women to bear and care for their own children. Wait a minute. Won't that end kind of our species or at least harm it greatly and then that became sodomy should be tolerated and later celebrated even though it can't lead to the procreation of our species again even without the bible i feel like that's kind of important and then this became marriage can be between two dudes and three women and a cat and a goat and then that became what the heck is a woman anyhow so these are not good arguments they are all extraordinarily bad ideas which begs the question, why then did they gain such broad institutional acceptance? Well, a number of ways, and I won't go into all of them, but one is the power of words in the context of evil. Again, words move people. 
because we were created to be moved by them. And fools suppose that they can surround themselves with fools who constantly speak foolish words and never become foolish themselves. Learn a lesson from the wisest man on earth who was rendered a wretch because he listened to his harem of godless whores and succumbed to their religions. And although we could add many more categories, here are just two more kinds of communicators to avoid. And they're both conveniently packaged in the same verse. Proverbs 20:19. He who goes about as a slanderer reveals secrets, therefore do not associate with a gossip. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 5 makes a connection between murder and slander, which I think is what is in view there. You've heard it said, I shall not kill, but I say to you, you shall not say to your brother, you rocker, you fool. When you slander somebody, what are you destroying? You're destroying their reputation. On so much of our lives and what we can or will accomplish is contingent upon our reputations. In the modern day, we hear about people being falsely accused of rape all the time. They're done. They have no future at that point. Racism also is used as a cudgel often and as a slander to shut people out of polite society so that they cannot even earn a living in many instances. This is what gossips and slanderers rob from their victims. Simply stated, they seek to steal their futures. They are murdering with their mouths who they are and who they might become. This is why, according to Deuteronomic law, if you bore false witness you were, and were discovered having done so, you receive the penalty that you tried to get levied against your victim. So if you stand up there in court and say, so-and-so murdered somebody, and you're found out as having lied about that, you get put to death instead. It's because it's that severe. And one of the most bewildering things about this is the person who associates with gossipers and, and slanderers and honestly believes that that person's not doing the same concerning them when they're not around them. Of course they are. And so if you know people like this and you're close to them, get away. Do not surround yourselves with those who seek to murder you with their mouths. Don't give them an opportunity. Because we live in a day of pervasive slander, be proactive as it is appropriate. I do not ever counsel women alone, period. On his one aspect of that consideration, because I am a man and I'm tempted as all men are, yes, that's one. Honestly, though, it's not the primary. The primary is that I understand that she has the power to destroy me by making any false claim whatsoever. So I'm not going to put myself in that circumstance. It doesn't mean that every woman that I would potentially meet with is a slanderer. It just means it's common enough for me to not have to be an idiot and learn the hard way. Point number nine, and here is one just for the ladies. We continue to affirm God-given sex roles through this study. Ladies, and also because Solomon writes this to you specifically, ladies, don't let your external beauty be lipstick on a pig. Proverbs 11.22 as a ring of gold in a swine's snout, so is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. So Solomon says here, if you're on a date with a pretty young thing who cannot control her mouth, brother, you better run away because the ugliness of her speech outweighs her physical beauty. 
Going back to Proverbs 5, you want a loving hind and a graceful doe. You do not want a she-donkey who doesn't have enough sense to keep everything that's in her head out of her mouth. She must have discretion. And this is also a grave warning to you young men as you consider who to marry. I have been with Lydia for 21 years. I have done some things some things that should not be mentioned. And she doesn't have to lie about me, by the way, to ruin me. She can do it with just the truth. If she were so inclined, she absolutely would. This is the power that she has over me by nature of the covenant with which I am engaged with her. But she has not availed herself of that power because she is a righteous and wise woman. Do not marry a woman like this. And if you are married to a woman like this, you cannot allow this to persist. This is on the level, if you recall, I remember saying to you, if you're a a lady here in the church and you have a husband who just refuses to lead spiritually, that is going to cause such profound generational consequences that you need to bring it to the church. You need to involve somebody else in it. You cannot let it go. This is in the same category. You gotta shut that down, man. You gotta shut it down hard. And women never become like this Watch your mouth. Put your hand over it if you have to. Finally, point number 10. Don't ever lie. Don't ever lie. On this point, is obviously equally binding upon men and women, but because it especially undermines everything that God calls and commands a man to be, I'd like to focus in on men, though not to the exclusion of women, certainly. But first... Here are some of Solomon's many explicit statements on this. Chapter 19, verse 5, a false witness will not go unpunished and he who tells lies will not escape. Proverbs 14, 25 through 26, a truthful witness saves lives, but he who utters lies is treacherous. In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence and his children will have refuge. Uh, For men, lying is generally an act of cowardice, which is directly antithetical to strength. Right? Why do we lie? We lie for a number of reasons. One of them is to not have to deal with the consequences of the truth. This is not how godly men act or behave, or men certainly that are relying upon the Lord. It's also a lack of faith, which is why Abraham lied, right? So it is a lack of faith, and it is a lack of strength. I'm back to, I think, the first sermon I I encourage you to engage regularly in um, observational sociological learning along the order of what Solomon does. I watched, I saw this person do that. I learned vicariously through the School of Hard Knocks so that I didn't have to get the degree personally. I was a beneficiary of a great lesson on this when I was very young. I was maybe eight years old and I watched a man tell a lie, a lie that did not need to be told in order to save himself from the consequences of his own sin and foolishness. And I saw that, and at eight years old, I didn't know much about what I wanted to become, and I didn't understand much about the formation of people in general, but I knew I didn't ever want to be that. And so I became very, very honest. Not perfectly honest, but very, very honest because I recognized in that point, at that point 
in the observation of that, that my integrity was worth a lot more than whatever consequences I was going to bear. And my integrity as it was viewed by the people around me, by what would be my wife and my children, brother, you're going to lose a lot more than you're going to gain. And the first and foremost reason why we do not lie is because God is not a liar. At the beginning, or near it, we acknowledged that communication is a gospel issue. Quoting from the Gospel of Luke, Jesus said that out of the heart the man speaks. And so new nature gives us, again, a new vocabulary. But the fact that this is a gospel issue also means that there is forgiveness which is really good because everything on this list except the thing about ladies because I'm not a lady, I violated all of it. And a lot of these things I violated pretty recently. So praise be to God that he sent his son who never violated any of those things, who practiced perfectly all of them. And by faith and repentance you may know him and he will wash your wicked words away in the same way that he has washed all of our wicked actions away. None of us live up to this standard. None of us will, this side of heaven. But Christ did. And he died for sinners. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your grace today. I thank you for the truth of your word, for the clarity that it provides. I thank you that we know how to please you. And I thank you, Lord, that we know whom to run to when we have not pleased you. And we praise you and we thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.